want to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31, as we continue our study uh, through this book of Acts, learning what it means to be a sent people. And while you're turning there, and before we begin, I want to remind you uh, that our first baptism of 2018 happens in just two weeks, February 25th. And, you know, as we've been studying through this book of Acts, we have seen again and again that when people follow Christ, baptism is always the very next step of obedience. Uh, We saw that even last week, as Paul is converted by Christ, he comes to faith in Christ, and he gets baptized as an obedient step of of following the command of Jesus. And so if you've trusted uh, in Christ for your salvation, and yet you've not been baptized as a believer Uh, baptized uh, biblically by immersion, uh, then we want to invite you to take uh, that step. And you can talk to any of our pastors if you have some questions. I would be happy uh, to help you. You can sign up on your Connect card, and we'll look forward to having you be a part um, of that uh, great time in just two weeks. Now, as we look at Acts 9, uh, I have a couple of questions I want us to begin thinking about this morning, and it kind of begins here. I I wonder... How many of us came to faith in Christ sort of thinking that following Jesus would somehow solve all of our problems? And if not all of our problems, then surely God was going to take care of most of our problems. And if God did allow some problems into our lives, then we were pretty sure that he wouldn't let the really, really bad ones, right? Like a terminal disease or the premature loss of a loved one. I wonder how many of us find ourselves thinking, at least on an unconscious level, even today, that if we, we really dedicate ourselves to the Lord, you know, we read our Bibles every day and we pray every day and we give 10% of our income, and then if we really, really, really sacrifice by leading a middle school small group, <laughs> then surely God is going to reward us. He's going to reward us by protecting us from the really bad things in life. And I also wonder, with those kind of thoughts that tend to run through most of our minds, how many of us have looked around at our lives one day and seen all the problems and seen all the pain that we were going through, and we asked ourselves this question, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? I I thought about this recently when I read the story of an Iranian refugee who was living in Europe. He's a Muslim man, and He had secretly begun exploring who Jesus was and what Jesus taught. And over a period of several months, he he was secretly meeting with some Christians. And he was reading the New Testament and, and he was praying. And he was asking God to show him truth. And one day, he placed his trust in Jesus Christ. He received Christ as his Lord and as his Savior. And he began planning his baptism with his new brother's and sisters in Christ, but he was doing it in his secret because of the threat from his family. And he came to the day that he was going to be baptized, and it was that morning, and one of his brothers awakened him in his bed by pouring boiling water over his body. And he received severe burns, and he discovered that his family had found out. Now, this man went through with his baptism, and he declared as he got baptized that Jesus is worth everything that I might suffer. And I read that story and I wondered, is that how I would have responded? I kind of think I would have said, God, what are you doing? 
I thought about that also when I read the story of a man named Kurt Allen, who is now a missions pastor at a church um, on the East Coast. A number of years ago, he resigned his job as an executive, successful man in corporate America, and he was going to go with his family and live overseas to try to reach a Muslim unreached people group. And shortly after they got on the mission field, his son developed a very serious medical condition, and he wrote these words. He said, Lord, this isn't what is supposed to happen. We've submitted to your will for our lives. We've sold just about everything we have. We are disassembling the American dream. We are leaving everything and everyone familiar. We're we're moving our family from the medical capital of the Southeast. We're going to a place where with little or no health care, and the people here are hostile to the Gospels. We have come to be your witnesses, and then you do this? And I think everyone who is serious about following Jesus, will ask this question sooner or later. You've probably asked it. God, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? Because God sometimes doesn't do what we thought he would. Or God sometimes allows some things we never thought he would allow. And we can find ourselves confused and find ourselves angry. We, we may think that God has abandoned us. We ask, why would God let this happen? And all of this came together as I was reading Saul's story because it occurred to me, maybe Saul sometime felt like this. You know, last week, remember, we, we studied that dramatic encounter that Saul had with Jesus Christ, how he came to know Jesus. We, we saw how God turned Saul's life upside down, how God dealt with Saul's past and how God gave Saul a plan for his future. He forgave Saul's sins. God said he wanted to use Saul's life. And last week as we studied that, we we learned that Saul's conversion teaches us uh, many lessons about our own conversions. Well, today I want you to see that how God was working in Saul's life after he became a Christ follower also teaches us some important lessons. Now, we're going to be reading and studying verses 19 through 31, but before we get there, I want to remind you of two verses we looked at last week, because verses 15 and 16, they they kind of frame what we're going to study today. So let me read again verses 15 and 16. Uh, It says, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. There are two things in those two verses that don't really seem like they go together. Maybe you notice them. Maybe you want to underline or circle the word chosen and the word suffer. Do those really seem like they should go together? You see, we, we, we tend to think that pain and suffering is what Satan causes. We think that pain And suffering, that's what happens to us when we are living the wrong way. But Acts 9, 19 through 31 shows us that Saul suffered from the very beginning of his life as a Christ follower. Saul suffered even when he was in the will of God, obeying what God had told him to do. He just experiences all kinds of challenges and hardship and pain. And we're going to see in these verses that Paul was chosen, yet he was opposed, that that Paul was chosen, yet God took many years to prepare him. There were delays in his life. We're going to see that Paul was chosen, and yet he suffered. And I want us to see that God often works just like that in our lives. And this is very important because if we know this, 
It can give us hope to walk with God through our lives when life is difficult. And hope is so important. Now, there's a famous experiment that took place in the 1950s, and it was an experiment where a researcher was trying to determine how long a rat could swim. And I was thinking when I read about this, don't the rats sometimes wish that researchers would just leave them alone, you know? <laughs> but he wanted to determine how long a rat could swim, and he discovered if he just threw the rat into the water and there was no way for the rat to get out, the rat would swim for about 10 minutes and then they would drown. But changing no other factors, if the researcher would just reach in to the water and pull the rat out two or three times during those first 10 minutes and then put them back in, the rat would then be able to swim for more than 60 hours. See, changing nothing else but just introducing hope gave the rats the ability to last more than 100 times longer than they could last without hope. And so, therefore, my purpose this morning is to give God's rats hope today <laughs> so that life won't drown you. I want you to see that in opposition and in delay and in suffering, God has a plan for your life, and he's working that plan. And if you're not a Christian, I think that maybe you'll see that God works differently than you might have thought. So let's read Paul's story with this in mind. Beginning in verse 19, this is what Luke writes. He says, Saul, and of course, as you remember, I'm going to be going back and forth, Saul, Paul, Saul, Paul. His, his name is still Saul in the account, but we know him as Paul, so sometimes we slide back and forth. But, but Luke writes, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished. And ask, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them. And moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord." There are three questions I want you to see today that come from this text. Three questions that we can ask ourselves when we are not able to see what God is doing. Here's the first one. Will I follow God even if I face opposition for my faith? Will I follow God even if I face opposition for my faith? Now here's what's going on in verses 19 through 22. Paul is beginning his 
Christian walk, his life as a believer, and it seems like he does everything right. He's obeying God in every way. Verse 19 says he spends several days getting acquainted with his new brothers and sisters in Christ there in Damascus. In other words, he enters the fellowship as we're supposed to do. He becomes part of the life of the body of Christ there. Verse 20 says he immediately begins to proclaim in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. So he's now sharing his faith. He's evangelizing. He already understands the central truth of the Christian faith so well that he astonishes everyone who hears him. You know, the enemy of the way is now the advocate of the way. And Luke says in verse 22 that Saul's preaching became more and more powerful. This is spiritual power he's talking about here. He easily baffles the Jews that are debating with him, proving that Jesus is the Christ. And it's just like Saul is doing everything God asks him to do. And yet, in verses 23 through 25, Luke tells us that the Jews conspire to kill him. His life is now in danger. And it's so bad that that one night his followers lower him in a basket through an opening in the city walls. Kind of like a little scene from Indiana Jones right here. You know, Saul is doing everything right. He's obeying God in every way. But people still reject his message. People still impugn his motives. They're even trying to kill him. So think about that. Is there anyone here and you met Jesus and you trusted Jesus and then you discover that you couldn't understand why everyone else in your life wasn't as excited about Jesus as you are? Have you ever been confused when out of obedience you are trying to share your joy in Christ with other people and they won't even listen. Maybe you've had friends turn on you and tell you to leave them alone. They don't even want to be your friends anymore. Maybe you've even had parents and they've rejected you. Saul was facing opposition from his own people and I think he must have wondered, how can they not see not understand. Jesus is the Messiah. Come to save his people. He's the one we've been waiting for because now it is so clear. It is so reasonable to Saul. But he gets rejected. And even the church didn't fully have his back. Did you notice that in verse 26? Luke says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he really was a disciple. They thought he was like being a double agent or something, and, and they didn't want to let him in. Now, here's how Saul's experience challenges us. It causes us to ask some questions of ourselves, questions like, am I ready? Am I ready to face opposition? Am I ready to have my motives impugned? Am I, am I ready to suffer for Jesus Christ. And if I face opposition, will I stay faithful? See, there are a lot of people who are happy to follow Jesus as long as their lives go well, as long as Jesus makes things better. But they find when opposition comes that they draw back and maybe they even withdraw completely from the faith. See, Paul didn't do that. He stayed faithful. You keep going in verses 27 through 30. And Luke tells us that after he came to Jerusalem, Barnabas stood up for him and vouched for him. He told the apostles who Paul was, how in, Jeru- uh, in Damascus he had preached fearlessly. That's literally the word boldly in the name of Jesus. Verse 28 uses that word again, that he continued to preach boldly there in Jerusalem in the name of Jesus. 
Verse 29 says he was so effective in debate again. Now he's debating the Grecian Jews. And maybe you remember, these are Saul's people. These are the people that he had conspired with back in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7 to kill Stephen. Well, these people try now to kill him. And verse 30 says it's so bad that Saul is again sent away for his own safety. This time he's taken down to the coast at Caesarea and his friends put him on a boat and send him across the corner of the Mediterranean Sea to his hometown of Tarsus. You know, I look at this and all of it raises the question, what if Saul had not continued to preach boldly? What if he had stopped? Well, there's a sense in which we can say, humanly speaking, we wouldn't be here today. And it causes me to ask this question, whose life and eternity depends on you being bold? I heard a story this week about a mom whose driveway was on an incline. It was right above a very busy street, and she had come home, and she was getting her two preschoolers out of the car, and somehow the parking brake failed, and the car started to roll back into the traffic, this very busy street, and she couldn't jump in, and and in desperation, she did the only thing that she saw to do in the moment. She threw herself under the car in an attempt to stop the car, and it worked. She kept the car from going onto the busy road and maybe saved her kids' lives. But the car rolled over her and broke both her legs, one of her hips, tore up a lot of her internal organs. It put her in the hospital for weeks. Now, if you're a parent, you can kind of understand that, right? Because your kids' lives are so valuable to you, you would be willing to have your body broken to save them. Some things are so important They are worth losing almost anything, right? Isn't the gospel one of those things? Isn't the gospel worth being opposed? Isn't the gospel worth being mocked? Isn't the gospel even worth being used as a punchline maybe for your own family? Because with the gospel, eternity is on the line, life and death, heaven and hell. And our enemy will do anything that he can to silence you. Will you remain bold? Paul kept preaching boldly, and aren't we glad he did? See, it's still true today. Someone's life is still dependent on you being bold. Will you remain faithful even when you're opposed? Here's the second question that we see from Paul's early experience as a Christian. Will I keep trusting God even if he seems to put my life on hold. Now, there's something going on in this text that you probably won't see right away. You almost have to study it in depth and even go to some of the commentators who go farther than what we might notice just at first. But here's what it is. There is a whole lot of time passing in these 13 verses that we don't really see at first. Luke is telling a story, and he's kind of compressing the history. He's not giving us year by year by year by year And we only discover this when we go to some other places. Now, Luke does give us a clue. It's in verse 23. He writes, after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. And so Paul escapes from Damascus. Paul goes to Jerusalem. And and we don't really know how long this is, how many days 
Luke is referring to. But in Galatians 1, verses 15 to 18, Paul tells us that it's three years. This is what he writes. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. So three years pass before Saul meets the first apostle, before he meets the first leader, true key leader in the church. What did he do for those three years? Well, evidently he's spending some time in Damascus and he's going out into what, what we would know today as the Arabian desert. They're not really that far apart He's spending time with Jesus. He's sharing the gospel, his faith with Jewish people one by one by one, pointing them to Jesus, bringing them to Jesus. And then after three years of obscurity, he gets his first introduction to Peter. But he's only there for a couple weeks and he leaves again. And we know from Galatians as well that it's going to be 14 years before he sees the apostles again. This is what Paul says in Galatians 2.1. 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. So the question is, what happened during those 14 years? Well, we have some evidence. We can piece some things together. We know some things. But for most of this time, probably around 10 years, we don't really know. We don't really have any clear indications of specifically what was going on. We get some clues in some of Paul's letters, and, and scholars believe that it was during this time that he had some of these visions that he had that clarified his calling from God. He had some visions that gave him crucial insights about Jesus. We also know that during this time, Saul was persecuted a lot. One of the places that indicates this is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And that's not, that's like with a rock, okay? <laughs> Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have constantly been on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. It's sort of like this. If Paul could have written an autobiography, I think his title for his autobiography might have been My Worst Life Now. And how much of that happened when Paul is living in utter obscurity? When Paul is just kind of living off the grid. He's not in the center. He's not in the spotlight of what God is doing. Nobody really knows what is going on in his life. This is going on for at least a decade. You see, we won't hear from him again in Acts until Acts eleven twenty five, when Barnabas once again steps up, acts as an advocate for, for Saul, and he travels to Tarsus and brings him back to Antioch. And then it's not until Acts 13 
that he receives his first official commission from the church. Now, again, scholars are unsure. We don't have all of the evidence to make it clear. We don't know uh, exactly what happened when, but we know there are between 14 and 17 years between the time that God converted him in chapter 9 to the time when he is officially commissioned as a missionary of God's church in chapter 13. So God took at least well over a decade to prepare him. You have to wonder if Saul sometimes asked God, why are things moving so slowly? And this is an interesting thing when you read the Bible. It's interesting how often God seems to prepare people by putting their lives on hold. Have you noticed that? In fact, God does it so often that it almost seems like it's standard operating procedure for him. God told Joseph that he was going to use him to save his people, Israel. And then God sends Joseph off to slavery in prison for two decades. God tells Moses hundreds of years later that he's going to use him to bring his people out of Egypt. And then he sends him to ten sheep for his father-in-law for 40 years. Anybody here want to work for your father-in-law for 40 years? God anoints David to be king over Israel, but then he sends him right back out to the pasture to shepherd sheep in isolation, in obscurity. And then when David gets a break and he's brought into the palace and you think maybe his time has come, he ends up being falsely accused. He ends up being a fugitive for more than a decade, running for his life. It's like, you know, Joseph, 20 years, Moses, 40 years, David, around 15 years, Paul, 14 or 17 years. And here's my question for us, for you. Are you complaining about how long God is taking with you? See, it is while we are waiting that we learn to trust God wherever he puts us. While we are waiting, even when it seems like we're spinning our wheels, it is then that we develop character. It is then that we learn patience. And I know that it's hard. Some of you are in a kind of a holding pattern, and your holding pattern may be singleness, or your holding pattern may involve unemployment, or your holding pattern may involve a dead-end job. I mean, you have work, but it seems to have no purpose, and you have to keep working just to provide for your needs or your family's needs, and it's hard, but it's where God has put you. It's where God is teaching you. Will you remain faithful while God seemingly has put your life on hold? Here's the third question. Will I love God even if I have to suffer? And I think it's uh, accurate to say if we could choose one word to characterize Paul's early years as he followed Christ, it would be the word suffering. And this goes back to those verses we read earlier. God had said it in verses 15 and 16. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Do you understand that suffering has always been and always will be one of God's primary training tools for his people. Suffering doesn't mean that something is wrong. Suffering means that God is preparing you. 
This word instrument that God uses in Acts 9.15 is the Greek word that's pronounced skuos. It more literally could be translated vessel. It's the same word that's used in 2 Corinthians 4.7 where Paul writes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay or vessels of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You see, vessels don't have value or worth on their own. Vessels can hold something valuable. Vessels can be a conduit through which power from something else can flow. And up until his conversion, Saul saw himself as a competent and capable tool for God. But God wanted Saul to become a vessel of his power. It's like we said last week, Saul the strong needed to become Paul the small. And so God took time, and God used that time to humble him. You know, we read the the epistles, the letters that, that Paul is going to write down the road. One of the things we see time and time again in these letters is just this humble dependence on God's power. So where did he learn that? He didn't learn it through success. He learned it through suffering. And let me just remind us of something that I think many of us know, and if you don't know it, you need to know it. Maybe you've noticed this in your life. When everything is going well for you, when you are succeeding, when you are thriving, when you are prospering, when you are making all the right decisions in your life, has anyone noticed that sometimes, many times, if not most of the time, our spiritual lives can start to drift? Just to check here and see how we're doing. Has anyone had something like that happen at one time or another in your life? Or you know somebody who's had that experience. You can raise your hand for them. That's the way it works, isn't it? And isn't it interesting how often God uses pain to get our attention? God uses suffering to draw us back to himself. God uses these difficulties to cause us to come to him and depend on him. Uh, A.W. Tozer, pastor in the last century, said this one time, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Now, I don't like that quote, but it's true. Maybe you can think about it this way. If dependence is the objective, then weakness is your advantage. That was a good place for an amen, okay? Let me say it again. If dependence is the objective, then weakness is your advantage. It's too late. You missed it the first time. But weakness, really, it's how we learn to operate in God's power, not our power, right? And suffering helps us get in touch with our weakness. You can also write this down. Suffering is also where God purifies your heart and strips you of your idols. We see this so many times in the Bible. Just think of the story of Abraham. We studied his life a couple years ago. And maybe you'll remember that Abraham left everything to follow God. And God called him and God told him that if he would follow him, he would make of him a great nation. And that through his descendants, the whole world would be blessed. But the problem with that promise was that Abraham was childless. He and his wife, Sarah, were sterile. They'd been barren, and this had been true for decades. He was now about 90 years old, and Sarah was 80 years old, and they had given up. And that makes sense, because at that age, not even the blue pill offers much hope, right? But God kept his promise. 
And God gave him a son in his old age, and his son's name was Isaac. And that name, Isaac, means laughter. And Isaac becomes Abraham's greatest earthly treasure. It was through Isaac that he had hope, his only hope for a future legacy, because he's not going to have any more kids, he doesn't think. And along comes an angel in Genesis 22. And the angel says, God wants you to sacrifice Isaac, your son. There's no explanation. Now, imagine being Abraham. What had he done wrong? God, why are you punishing me? And to all this, God gave no answer. Now, Abraham obeyed. And he took Isaac, and they traveled to the place God told him to go, and they got there, and he built an altar, and he put the wood on the altar, and he tied Isaac up, and he laid him on the altar, and the knife was in the air, and he was about to sacrifice him when a voice from heaven spoke and said, Stop. And the voice said, now I know that you love me more than anything else. Now I know that you trust me, in me, more than anything else. And here's the question that I have today. What if that is some of what God is doing in your life? What if God is testing you through difficulty and pain And helping you to see where your first love should be and where your ultimate trust should always be. You know, sometimes I think some of us do the wrong thing when we look at our suffering and we try always to find a silver lining in everything. There's always an explanation of how it's better now than it would have been before. It's like, well, yeah, I didn't get into med school at Stanford, but Stan State let me in and I met my wife there and so it's all good. Maybe there's not an explanation. Sometimes God just does things simply to prepare your heart more for himself. In fact, look at that phrase in verse 15 again where God says, this man is my chosen instrument. You might circle that little word, my. God wants your heart to belong fully to him. He wants you to love him. He wants you to trust him. You see, God calls you first to himself and only secondarily to a task. And that means what God is doing in you is just as significant as what he is doing through you because we glorify God not just by the things we do for him, but by who we become in him. And he is preparing some of you for himself, whether it's through your singleness or through your unemployment, or through your physical or your emotional pain. And maybe the message some of you need to hear this morning is this. Quit fighting God. And it is painful. Tim Keller says in one of his books that the most painful times of our lives are usually when God is digging out of our lives some cherished idol. Because he has chosen you for himself. And you have to trust him. And and I know this is going to come as a shock to some of you, especially, you know, we live in this culture in America where we are told that everything is about us from the first day we are born, through all the Disney movies we watch, through every day at school. It's all about you. It's all about you. The Bible never says that. In fact, the Bible says the opposite. The Bible says it's not about you. And so maybe even your suffering sometimes is not about you at all. You say, where do you get that? Well, one example would be the book of Job. Have you ever stopped to think, 
that Job never got to read the book of Job. (laughs) And so Job didn't get to read Job 1 and 2, where we get the explanation for why the book of Job is written, why Job has to go through everything he has to go through. We, we see in those chapters that Job's suffering was ultimately about God glorifying himself in the presence of all the heavenly hosts. It wasn't about Job at all. So why would we think that Job is the only one that has ever happened to? There's another big mistake we make when we suffer And that is that we demand always understand. And so as you suffer, don't demand to understand. A lot of us are like, okay, God, you know, I'm willing to suffer if you're willing to explain. Look, God is God and you're not. God doesn't have to make a deal with you. This is not a contract. So saying, God, I'll suffer anything, but you just have to tell me in advance why it happens. You know, sometimes God is so gracious that he explains himself. But not always. Sometimes you just have to trust him. See, we see in Paul's life, he was chosen, yet he was opposed. He was chosen, yet he experienced delay. God put his life on hold. Paul was chosen, and yet he suffered. This word chosen really holds the key to so much in the Christian life. And before we close, I want to take a few minutes to talk about it. Uh, If you know anything at all about this concept and the word in the New Testament and and in the Old Testament. You know, we could talk about this for hours and and for days, and we're not going to do that. But with verses 15 and 16 in mind again, let me just tell you three things that chosen for sure means in all of our lives. First of all, being chosen means my salvation is secure. And this is an important thing to remember when you're in pain, when you're suffering. You see, being chosen means that my salvation doesn't depend on my choosing God. God chose me. And we see this so clearly in Paul's life. Do you understand? Do you remember? Paul wasn't seeking Jesus. Paul hated Jesus. Jesus knocked him off his horse, knocked him to the ground, and Jesus chose him. Now, I know this will raise some questions in our minds about sovereignty, the sovereignty of God and human free will and human responsibility. We don't have time to explore that today. I just want to remind you that the Bible is crystal clear that God is sovereign and God is good and God is always just. And therefore, we can trust God always to do what is right, even if we don't understand, even if we don't get it. And so therefore, we should rest in that. We should rest in the security we have in our choosing. That means I can be secure in my salvation. It's not up to me. God in his power saved me. And God in his power chose me. And God in his power is going to keep me. And that's good news. This also means being chosen, that I can have security as I share my faith. You know, a lot of what we've been talking about today is about Paul sharing his faith, sharing about Jesus Christ. And again, that God chose Paul, number one, public, you know, public enemy number one of the Christian faith, God chose him to become the greatest advocate for Jesus the world has ever known. That shows us that God is fully in charge of the whole world evangelization process. That means, big picture, that God is not sitting up in heaven wringing his hands thinking, oh no, oh no, 
Uh, maybe this every tribe and tongue and nation thing is a little bit pre- premature. That's kind of unrealistic. I mean, we didn't know about the fundamentalist Muslims back when I said that. God's not up in heaven going, what are we going to do with this guy Putin? He's a problem, man. I didn't factor him in. God is in charge of the world evangelization process. And again, go back to Abram, Abraham. Do you remember how God promised uh, physically sterile Abram one night that he would have as many descendants as the stars in the skies? And he promised him that when he was completely sterile. We can take from that one thing, as surely as there are stars in the skies, he will do that even in our lives when we feel spiritually sterile. He can still use us. He is still at work in us. And he is not at work only in the world evangelization process. He is at work as you share your faith one-on-one with other people in your life. Why are you a witness at work? Why are you a witness at school? Because God chose you And God said he would use you, and God has called you to tell others about Jesus. Last thing I want to mention is chosen means I have security in my circumstances. Security in all these things that we've been talking about. Paul is later going to write these words in Philippians. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, you need to remind yourself as you read those words, who wrote those words and how his life went and how his life ended. Because the truth is, sometimes in Paul's life, this is the only thing he had to hold on to. We've been talking about the start of Paul's ministry, how he faced opposition and suffering. But do you realize his whole ministry, his whole life was characterized by opposition and by suffering? Paul, the apostle who we so admire, didn't spend his years in glory and comfort and ease and success. He spent his years in obscurity, and he ended his life in prison. He never made any money. And when he died, half the church thought he was awesome, but there was a whole lot of other people who were slandering, who were claiming that he was like an egotistical maniac. And Paul died by execution. He was executed by Nero, and his body was discarded. There was no grave. Scholars say his body was probably eaten by dogs because it would have been dumped into a dump with other criminals' bodies, and the birds and the dogs would have consumed it. See, we know now, looking back 2,000 years later, that God was behind it all. That God was working in it all. But remember, Paul couldn't see that then. Paul didn't know that as his head lay on a chopping block and as he heard the last thing he heard in his life, his life on this earth, that axe falling on his head and his head bouncing in the dirt, severed from his body. He never knew that. He never knew that. And yet, we know Paul won. We know that his life was victorious. But we have to remember from his perspective, it sure might have seemed like he was losing. So let me ask you, from your perspective right now, does it seem like you're losing? I just want to ask you also, don't you think that God will be as faithful to you as he was to Paul?
You see, what was true of Paul, that he was God's chosen instrument, it is also true of you. If you don't know that, I'm here to tell you today. God chose you. If you are in Christ, if you have given your life to Christ, if you trusted in him to forgive your sins and to bring you into his eternal family, you've given yourself to him to take care of your eternity, then you're in Christ and you are chosen and you are his chosen instrument and he wants to work in your life just as well. So that means for you, when you are opposed, you can respond with boldness. That means for you, when your life gets delayed, God's taking way too long to do what he needs to do, you seem like you've been put on hold, then you can respond with faith. And when you suffer, then you can keep loving God and you can respond with resurrection hope because you are chosen. Southwinds, we are chosen. God is using us. And so when we think we're struck down just like Paul, we're not destroyed. When we're persecuted, we're not forsaken. When we feel like we're crushed and we're perplexed, we don't have to be in despair. Even though we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, it is for the purpose that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. It's like Paul said, this is why I'm suffering as I am, so that Jesus can be revealed in me. But I'm not going to be ashamed because I know I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard, to keep what I have entrusted to him until that last day. So see, Paul lived in confidence because he knew he was chosen. And even when he was asking, God, what are you doing? He could press on. He could keep believing. He could keep hope. And he could keep loving God. And we too, can have that same confidence today because God has chosen us and God is working in us. Amen. Would you bow your heads? We'll pray together. If you feel persecuted this morning, I just want to remind you, you are not forsaken. If you feel like you've been knocked down, you're not destroyed. And if it feels hopeless, then don't look inside for hope. Don't look to your friends for hope. Just look to Jesus. And if you look to Jesus, you will hear him saying, you are chosen. You are my chosen instrument. I have chosen you for myself. Father God, we ask that you would encourage us and strengthen us with these truths from your word and that our lives would be different. Father, as we leave this place today, um, may we go and may we be ready to share the message with someone who needs to hear from us about the hope we have in you. And Lord, as we go today and as we are experiencing discouragement or pain in our life, whatever form that it may take, may we be reminded that you are working and you are changing us and you are making us more and more like your son each day as we trust you. And may May we allow you to so work in our lives that you receive great glory. We love you, Father. We give you thanks for Jesus. We give you thanks for your grace. We give you thanks for your love. And we ask and we pray all these things now in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, our Lord. And all God's people together say, Amen.